our study of the book of Revelation brings us to one of the most terrifying doctrines of the Bible and the study of hell. It is incredibly important to get this right. And I've got to say it is one of the areas that frustrates me. You guys know that hell is not taught on often. Preachers just don't cover it. They don't preach it. And um, in Calvary Chapel, it's probably covered a little bit more because we go line by line, verse by verse through the Bible. And we talk about hell when we get to the passages that talk about hell. But still, it's gone over quickly and we don't dwell a long time on it. And one of the things that drives me crazy about teachings on hell is there are a lot of things that are said. There are a lot of verses that are quoted, but a lot of verses that are ignored and a lot of verses that are quoted without covering difficult passages to the position that you hold. So I wanted to take time to be able to talk about hell, what it really is, what the Bible says it is, and try to get it right. Now, I'm not claiming that I'm going to get it right 100%. And I'll tell you right now that there are certain things I am not settled on when it comes to this doctrine. I am not really confident about exactly the way things are. What's a metaphor and what's not a metaphor? What, what does it speaking of something or is it literal? There's so many things that are said that even contradict one another that we know that there have to be metaphors. And so we have to approach this thing with a desire to say, Lord, reveal to me the truth. Help me to know what I need to know. But what I will tell you about Jesus and talking about hell, and you may have heard that Jesus talked more about hell than any other, uh, than anyone else did, whether it was heaven or hell, when Jesus was talking about it, he always was talking about the life we live now. Better for you to go into eternity without your right hand than to be thrown whole into Gehenna. So he talked about what you're doing now. Same thing with heaven, that we would, we would make friends for heaven, that when we're going to heaven, it's about how we're living now. So we are to study these things, thinking about how am I supposed to live now in my relationship to God? Now, the message today is getting hell right. And that's the desire. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this in one study as much as I would like to. I'm going to try, but I'm not going to worry about it if I don't. We'll return to it next week and we'll finish up what we need to finish up. So if that's the case, there will be getting hell right and then getting hell right part two. Uh, the subtitle is the nature of hell, the future of the ungodly. Let's read our text. And this is the text that we've read before. And you'll see at the end of this why we're talking about the to this topic. Revelation 20, 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to its, the works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that was in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that are in them. Let's pause for a moment and talk about this term Hades here, okay? Because that's a different term than the term that's translated to hell. This is Hades, and it just simply means the grave. It's the Old Testament equivalent to what they transfer what they translate either as the grave or hell, depending on the context, but it simply means the place of the dead. It means the grave. The Old Testament talks about there being no remembrance in Sheol. And so some people have assumed that that means there's soul sleep, that you're sleeping while you're in the grave. But it's talking about the body in the grave. There's no remembrance for that body in the grave in Sheol. So Hades is the grave. So when it says, and death and Hades, delivered up the dead that were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So they were all there. Then uh, this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this is the reason that I believe everybody's standing before this judgment throne. It was a question that I was asked after the study last Wednesday night, which is a very important study, by the way. If you if you've missed it, you may want to go back and pick that one up. Because we talked about what, the, what about those who never heard and what's God going to do about children or people that can't understand uh, the difference between right and wrong. And the Bible is, is incredibly clear about how God will respond and react to those who never heard and those who can't understand. And we cover it. But here, if your name's not found written in it, you're thrown into the lake of fire. So we assume that the people that are there whose names are written in it are standing before this judgment seat as well. And anyone not found written in the book was cast into the lake of fire. So this lake of fire is different 
than what Gehenna, we think that Jesus was referring to as Gehenna. A few years ago, I was on a trip to Israel. We take them every couple of years. We take a couple buses with us and we were stuck in traffic in Jerusalem. And we were with um, one, of, one of my favorite guides for us to have. Um, he is from Philadelphia. He's an American. He's Jewish. He uh, lives there and in Israel and is a guide. But he also was going in, in a, to a school in Philadelphia for his Ph.D. And I really like him. And while we were sitting kind of stuck in traffic, he said, well, well, I might as well take this opportunity. You got the little microphone, talk to the bus. I might as well tell the, take this opportunity to talk to you guys about hell. Look to your left. And everybody looked over to their left. And he goes, that is the valley of Gehenna. That is when Jesus said, it is better for you to, have your, to, have to take your hand off than to be thrown into the valley of Gehenna as a whole person. That is hell. That's where it's at. And then he said this. Now, remember, he's studying for his PhD. He said, you may have heard that Gehenna used to be the trash dump during the days of Jesus. A burning dump, a burning trash dump. And that when Jesus was referring to hell, he was referring to a, a burning garbage dump. And then he said, but that's not true. We don't have any evidence that there was a garbage dump in Gehenna. And he said, look at it. It's not that big. And archaeologists, they make a living going through dumps. That's what they do. When they go to a site, they look for the dump. And it's easy to find the dump because you dumped everything in there. And if there was a dump there, you would have known that there was. The only evidence that they ever found of a dump anywhere near the Valley of Gehenna. Now, this is me now. I'm going to end the quotes a while ago with Steve. But the only dump that we knew about, that we know about in Gehenna was a Roman dump that was a couple of hundred years afterwards. And it's just a small little section. Now, that got me thinking, because how many times have we heard people say that Gehenna was a garbage dump? And, and I'm listening to study. I'm, I'm studying like crazy on hell right now, right? I'm up to the last minute. I'm listening to Erasing Hell by Francis Chan as I'm driving over to church tonight. I'm getting as much information as I can because I really want to get this right. And I'm listening to uh, a guy I respect on YouTube. I'm not going to give his name. And he came out 11, last night when I watched it, 11 hours ago, he came out with five different views on hell. And I thought, this is timely. And so I watched it. One of the first thing he says is that Gehenna was a garbage dump. And I was like, oh, and my wife can attest to this. How many videos we're watching when the person says Gehenna was a garbage dump? And I'm like, oh, sometimes I even just change them. I'm like, oh, get it right. Now, it's not hard for you to research this. If you're wondering, I didn't cite my sources on this, because if you just type in was Gehenna the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, was it a garbage dump? then plenty of things are going to come up that show you that there's absolutely no evidence. The first time it was ever mentioned as a dump was in the 12th century. That's the Dark Ages. Well, and um, it was written that it was a, a dump. And that's the first time that we ever hear it. Now, that got me thinking. If we've got that wrong about hell and everybody says it, how many other things do we have wrong about hell? I knew already that hell was not the dungeon torture chamber of Dante's Inferno or of Milton's Paradise. Again, these are middle age writers, not middle age writers. They were in the middle age. Uh, Dante, I believe, lived in the 1300s. And he wrote um, the Dante's Inferno that was about all of this torment in hell, every imaginable way that you can possibly imagine that people are being tormented, they are being tormented. And then he goes through and he goes up into purgatory and then he eventually goes up into heaven. And I knew that that's not the picture that the Bible gives, but I wondered what else we might not get wrong. And I began to look into the different biblical views on hell. And I found some of them to be untenable. For example, there are those that believe that when you die, you are destroyed if you don't know God, and that's it. Now, I know enough about the Bible to know that there is a resurrection of the dead who don't know God. There is a judgment and there is a punishment. Whatever else you believe about where the ungodly go, it has to include those things. There needs to be a resurrection of the ungodly, a judgment of the ungodly, and a punishment of the ungodly. So some believe that you just die and that's it. You are gone. Others believe that everybody's going to make it to heaven. And this is 
This is Rod Bell, who wrote uh, Love Wins, that, that eventually everybody's going to make it to heaven. I think he believes that earth is hell and we go through hell on earth and there's hell here and maybe not all of it, but then you, when you die, you end up in heaven because you've already gone through hell. You've already faced your punishments. Other people believe it's kind of a purgatory kind of idea that you go to hell, you suffer there for a while, and then everybody's going to make it into heaven, that Hitler's going to go through enough suffering where he's finally going to go, what a horrible man I was, and he's going to make it up into heaven. I find that untenable compared to Scripture. I just don't find the Scripture to back up that everybody is going to get into heaven. Those, the, the, the warnings of Jesus makes no sense. However, I found several respected pastors, scholars, and Christian leaders who believe the common picture of hell is a caricature. I had to practice that word because I've always said it wrong. Caricature, like that's right, um, of what the Bible teaches. In other words, the cartoons are wrong. Dante's Inferno is wrong. The idea that people have about hell is wrong. These men like F.F. Bruce, if you know who he is, John Stott, N.T. Wright, and others are some of the well-known names that are in the middle of a growing debate about the nature and the duration of hell. Let me frame the debate in just a few verses. We want to talk about some things like, is the fire real? Or is the fire just a type or a metaphor for torment? C.S. Lewis believed that the fire was speaking of the fire or the torment of the mind. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called, um, ah, C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote a book about it and I'll figure it out later and let you know what it is. Um, but he wrote in the book that the gates of hell are locked from the inside and no one is there that doesn't want to be there. So his idea was is that people don't like God, they hate God when they die without him, they don't want him, and they will walk away from him no matter what. The, man, the rich man in Jesus' parable or story never asked to get out of heaven. And he justified himself. Send someone to my brother so they don't come to this place. In other words, if I had enough information, I wouldn't have come to this place if you would have just sent me. Which is why Jesus said uh, that, that Abraham would say, uh, tell them they have, Moses, they have Moses in the law. And even if somebody rises from the dead, they will not believe. You're not here because you didn't get enough information. There was enough information for you to be able to get. But um, so I want to kind of frame this debate. So uh, oh, C.S. Lewis just believed it was that the mind deteriorated uh, in, in hell and was in torment in its own selfishness and hatred of God and there was a continuation in, in sinning. So there's these different views that are out there. The debate that we find today, and more and more people are, this debate is coming to the surface. It's, it's moving forward more and more. And it's a debate that isn't talked about. When I, when I talk to people or I hear sermons on eternal conscious torment, okay? That's the belief that hell is eternal, you are conscious in it, and you are tormented forever, okay? I probably will start referring to that in these studies, and notice I've already gone to studies, as ECT, eternal conscious torment, okay? Um, and that is the traditional view of the church. It's been around for at least 1,700 years. Before that, there were those like the first century Jews that were alive during the time of Jesus that believed that it was either eternal conscious torment or they believed that there was conditional immortality. Now, there's another word that we need to get the reference for. Conditional immortality. That is that the soul of man, this is the thought, this is against eternal conscious torment, conditional immortality, that the soul of, of man is immortal only upon the condition of receiving Christ. That other than that, the soul is not immortal. So then after resurrection, after judgment, and after punishment, the soul would be annihilated in hell. So when you hear someone say, I believe in conditional immortality, you know that they're believing that the soul of man will be destroyed after they are punished. They still believe in punishment. They still believe in, in torment or suffering. They just believe that the soul will end up being annihilated in the end. 
Now, now this is, as I said, a growing thought. And some believe, and maybe rightfully so, it's because we want to hear that. Because who wants to think that someone's going to be tormented forever and ever and ever? And if there is something that we want to believe that it would come to an end compared to going on forever and ever is something we would want to believe. So there needs to be a great amount of evidence biblically for us to get there. And I am unsettled on the issue, by the way, just so I can tell you. John 3, 16 says this, for God so loved the world, this very popular verse, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now tell me, what does perish mean? Now some will say, well, that is an analogy for ECT, eternal conscious torment. In Mark 9, 47 and 48, however, Jesus said, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. Now let me ask you, is anybody going to enter the kingdom of God with one eye? There's no more lame. There's no more sick. So already we have a metaphor in this passage. Rather than having two eyes, be cast into Gehenna fire. Now, why would Jesus say Gehenna fire if it wasn't a garbage dump? Because years before that, the children of Israel and the Canaanites used the valley of Hinnom, and you can go to the Old Testament to see this, even kings, and they caused their children to pass through fire to the gods Molech and Balaam. Molech was the god of pleasure, and they sacrificed their children in order to have pleasure. And they have found this site in Israel where there are the bones of children that were buried around. This is before the time of Christ. They found the actual area where they sacrificed their children to these gods. And so Gehenna became known as a place, as an outcast, as a place where people would be punished. And this is not just Jesus. When you go back to the first century and you read the literature a, a century before and a century after to try to get the feeling of the way people feel about Gehenna, you find that when Gehenna comes up, they talk about it as a place of torment, a place of, of punishment. It's used in literature that way. So Jesus is speaking the, the words of the day. He's not coming up with his own thing. He's talking to them about the words that they use in their day. So it goes on to say here then, rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So there you have a worm that doesn't die and a fire that, does, that is not quenched. Certain, certainly seems different than perishing, right? Let me give you another one. 2 Thessalonians 1.19. This one here has conflicting words actually in it. There shall be, they, uh, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here they are punished with everlasting destruction. So, I mean, if you take that literally, it means that the destruction is eternal. Everlasting destruction. It doesn't say that God forever, I'm being attacked by a gnat, that God forever and slowly brings you to destruction. It says everlasting destruction. That's the terms. And this is what drives me crazy when I hear sermons on hell, they'll make a statement like that as if that just proves ECT, right? I don't have to keep saying what that is, right? At this point, eternal conscious torment, ECT. They, just like it proves it. And it says you're gonna be, you know, eternal destruction. And then they move on without covering the obvious question here is the word destruction. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that go there. In fact, the term destruction and perish is used as near as I can tell and death to describe the afterlife is used 70 times plus where there are a handful under 10 that talk about a, an eternity, a fire, a flame that continues on. So that doesn't make one true or the, over the other. I'm just laying out the debate. Matthew 10, 28 says, and do not fear those who can kill the body. This is Jesus speaking, but I'm going to kill that gnat in a moment. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him 
who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now, it's interesting. We read that. How often have we read it? And we are, we are by default, <laughs> those who believe in eternal conscious torment. I'm in a temporary torment right now by this gnat <laughs> that I'm going I'm to kill. <laughs> what a message to have a gnat attacking me in, right? Any other message, gnat, any other message. But isn't it interesting that we read that passage so often and because we are by default eternal conscious torment people, because that's what has been the historical view for 1700 years, because that's what we were brought up in, because that's what we learned, because that's what we saw in Looney Tunes, because that's what has been in our world. That's what we are. So we read, destroy the body and soul in hell in Gehenna. And we go, we don't even think about it. Destroy the soul. Well, that must be a metaphor for eternal conscious torment. At least that's what we think. So Luke 3, 17 says, the winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So an unquenchable fire is interesting, right? We, we picture that as an eternal fire, a fire that burns forever. But is an unquenchable fire a fire that burns forever or a fire that can't be put out? So if a fire, if a house goes on fire and they come and try to put the fire out, but the fire burns up the whole house, is that an unquenchable fire? Or is an unquenchable fire one that burns on forever and ever and ever? I can tell you that in the Old Testament, the word unquenchable, and I'll have this here later on in the study, is a fire that burns until it is completely destroyed. So that doesn't solve the problem. It, we're, we're, we're looking for something that will solve the problem, but I'm only laying out the debate here now. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that death is compared to eternal life. Doesn't say the wages of sin are eternal death, but eternal life compared to, but, but death compared to eternal life. Again, it just brings a question up. I'm not saying it proves one thing or another. Matthew 25, 46 is my last one for a little while. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there we have everlasting punishment. But is it the, the punishment, the actual torture or torment or punishment that goes on forever and ever? Or is it the punishment that's, that's permanent when it says everlasting punishment? The punishment happened to them and, it, and it's everlasting. The punishment will never be overturned. So again, we, aren't, we don't see them solved. And on top of that, on one side, we have perish, destruction, and death. On the other side, we have phrases like the fire is unquenchable, everlasting punishment, smoke of their torment that goes up forever and ever, which we haven't covered yet. And, and these can't coexist. They can't be talking about the same thing literally. One of them has to be a metaphor for the other one. We have to approach this knowing that not everything said about hell is, is literal. So something has to be a metaphor. Now, knowing this, we want to be very careful because we don't want to get this wrong. We want to get it right. So we have to be very careful. Now, um, I put here either, either perishing death, uh, destruction and death are an analogy for eternal conscious torment or everlasting judgment, smoke, torment, and unquenchable fire or an analogy speaking of destruction, that someone will eventually be destroyed. Now, one of the first books that I read when I started to look into this topic, this is the five years ago after I kind of learned that there was no dump in hell, and I looked that up, and I found out that that was true, there is none, even though people are still saying it today. I, I read Francis Chan's book, and Preston Sprinkle, tell me he didn't get made fun of as a child, last name Sprinkle. Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called Erasing Hell. It was in response to Rod, Book's book, Rod Bell's book on Love Wins, which was the idea of um, everybody making it to heaven in the end. So Francis Chan says this in the book. The doctrine about hell's duration is much more complex than I first assumed. The duration of hell, is it eternal or not? The doctrine of hell's duration is much more complex than I first assumed. When I lean heavily 
I lean heavily on the side of everlasting. I am not ready to claim with that with complete. Uh, I am not ready to claim that with complete certainty. In other words, he leans on the side of eternal conscious torment, but he's not ready to claim it totally because it's a complicated topic. And I, I love this about Francis Chan, whatever else you may think about him. I love that there is an honesty in what he does and what he brings. And that comes out in the book Erasing Hell, by the way. Now, John Stott, an evangelical Anglican, passed away in 2011. He had been an annihilationist. Now, an annihilationist is different than someone who believes in conditional immortality. Because annihilationists has all these different camps in there. Annihilationists can believe that you are annihilated when you die. They believe you are annihilated after you're judged. They believe that you are annihilated without punishment or they believe that you can go through all of them. So it's not really a good term to use. And the cults, many of the cults, the, what I call the American cults, believe in annihilationism. That's because they come out of the Millerites in the 1800s, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of Christ who believe you're baptized, by, the baptism saves you, um, the, um, the, eventually the Mormons near the end of the, um, near the end of the 1800s and um, um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now they believe different things about annihilationism, okay? They don't, don't all believe the same thing, but they all believe it. And so people will say, well, you can't believe in annihilationism because the cults believe in it. But the cults believe in, they, they're premillennial and we're premillennial. I mean, at least some of the cults are. Can't wrap them all together in one thing. But uh, they believe in some things that are true. So just because a cult believes it, why do, they, why do they believe it? You go back to Millerism and what Miller taught. Miller was the one who brought the great disappointment by saying that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. Remember that? And then there was the great disappointment. People ended up killing themselves because they sold everything believing Jesus was going to return. It's the danger of setting dates. But they taught many things that are true. And you can find a lot of things that are true, even in the cultish side of Seventh-day Adventists because Seventh-day Adventists can have churches that are more, um, more solid theologically. Even on the cultish side, you still find some who believe in it. So that doesn't mean that just because the cults believe in it that we don't believe in it. So John Stott had been an annihilationist for over 50 years when he died. He died in 2011. Stott wrote, well, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal suffering intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it or either categorize their feelings or cracking under the strain, which is probably what we do. We will categorize our feelings about it. We will put it out of our mind. We won't think about it. So he says, but, are the, but our emotions are fluctuating, unreliable guides to the truth. My question is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word says? Now, as I said earlier, John Stott, Francis Chan, are both very well respected, were, uh, and John Stott was in his field. Now, F. F. Bruce, Frederick Five, Five Bruce, um, he was born on, um, on uh, 1910, died in September of 1990. Usually cited as F. F. Bruce, uh, was Reynolds Professor of Biblical Criticism and Exegesis at the University of Manchester until 1959. Until 1978, one of the most influential evangelical scholars of the second half of the 20th century. Okay, well-known, well-respected evangelical Christian. He wrote in the preference of Edward Fudge's definitive work on annihilationism. And if you want to study annihilationism, Edward Fudge is your guy to do it. He's the guy that has done all of the work on it. Okay, it says the fire that consumes, that's Edward Fudge's book is a letter, in, in a letter to John Stott in, 18, in 1989, Bruce wrote, annihilation is certainly an acceptable interpretation of the relevant New Testament passages. So again, I'm just citing people that are well-respected who believe it because people have a tendency to want to call um, the, uh, the um, conditional immortality, have a tendency to want to call it a heresy. C.S. Lewis said, um, who was born um, in um, 1898, died in uh, 1963, was a British writer. You guys are all familiar with him, right? He said, hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word. So he's quoting somebody. And 
every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the, crea of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind. So you can see where he was thinking, the dungeon of his own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is a reality itself. All that is fully really real is heaven. For all that can be shaken will be shaken and only the unshaken will remain. So there are solid, good biblical men that we have trusted who have different feelings about hell. All of these men, I quote, with respect, uh, were respected in the Christian community. Some say that if you hold a different view on hell, that this is, their, this is their test as to whether or not you are genuinely saved. This is the litmus test. So when people will say that they, like C.S. Lewis, which is just not talked about, that hell is locked from the inside and no one is in hell that doesn't want to be there, they choose to be there. Their choice is in hell or heaven and they don't want to be in heaven. That's what C.S. Lewis said. So they will often be called heresy. Let's look at the definition of heresy and false teaching. Heresy and false teaching go hand in hand. A false teacher would be someone different, um, would be something different about an essential of the gospel. So a false teacher would say something that is not true or, or biblical about an essential in the, in the gospel. A heresy is against something essential as well. Error, not heresy, is being wrong about something not essential. In other words, a few weeks ago, we talked about all millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial. One of those, two of those are wrong. One of them's right. And how, maybe all three of them are wrong, who knows? But, but there's a lot of Christians in error that are teaching these things. But we don't call them heretics because it's not essentials in the Christian walk. It is the essential things about Christianity. False teachers teach things like Jesus was just a spirit and didn't have a body. That is an identified heresy, the Gnostic heresy. Okay? And we don't include them in the family of God. We don't reach out the right hand of fellowship to them. They are damaging to the church. They undermine the gospel. False teachers teach things like you are saved by eating kosher food or being circumcised. Now, in the Bible, you could, want, you could be circumcised and believe it was pleasing to God to do so, or you could eat kosher food and believe it was pleasing to God to do so. That was an error, but it wasn't a heresy. It was only a heresy when you connected it to salvation. Now, eating kosher food saves you. That's the heresy. One's a false teaching, and the other one's a heresy, and the false teacher is the one we call that teaches heresy. False teachers, for example, deny the resurrection. There was no resurrection. That would be a heresy. That's a false teacher and a heresy. That's not just an error and a false teaching. False teachers, another example, teach um, immortality, um, in, in, immorality, not immortality. False teachers teach immorality is permissible and anything goes. And we would say that's against solid biblical teaching and, 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 and it's aberrant from the, what the church has taught throughout its history. And that is heresy, and he is a false teacher, not just error. Then there is a category for things that are wrong, but not heresy. An example in the early church is uh, they were, there were those who taught that they could eat kosher. Paul did not treat them as a false teacher unless they were telling people that was a matter of salvation. If they say it's better to eat kosher or to please God, that does not make it a heresy. It does not make them a false teacher. It makes it a false teaching. The Bible makes a distinction between those things that undermine the gospel and damage the church. Someone can be wrong about a non-essential and we still believe that they are Christians. Now think about it. It just makes sense. How many, of, how many of us are wrong about something within Christianity? How many of us believe something that's wrong? Like 100% of us? So if believing something wrong made you not a Christian, then you would be in trouble. Now, Christians can believe things different about the millennium, creation, the gifts of the church, the role of women within the church. All of these are areas that we disagree on, but we, Calvinism, we disagree on it, but we believe that there are genuine Christians who follow Christ, who hold the tenets of the gospel. If someone teaches heresy, we would say they are not Christians. If someone teaches something wrong that is not essential, we would say that they are in error. So if someone holds a different view about the duration of hell or the nature of hell, than most Christians do, or the traditional view taught since the 17, taught 1700 years in the church. That's a long time for eternal conscious torment to be taught in the church, 1700 years. It, and, and we're wrong, or they're wrong. It makes them in error. It doesn't make them a heretic. Let me give you a quote by Robert Godfrey. 
This is about what is heresy and what is not heresy. Okay. He says, who is a minister? Uh, Robert Godfrey is a minister of the uh, United Reformed Churches of America and formerly served as the third president of Westminster Seminary in California. As of 2017, he's the president emeritus and a professor emeritus of church history. Okay. So he says, in regards to the difference between heresy and error, it's a great question because the word heresy sometimes is thrown around by people. In other words, if you disagree with something, you're a heretic. They, you know, people, and, and, and that happens on the internet all the time. I've been called a false teacher, I don't know how many times in the comments section of our YouTube page by something that I've, that by something that I've said because it differs with what they believe. Now, some people use the word heresy to simply mean error. And I think I've made my point clearly that it's something um, that is, it's something that is, is significant, is a significant essential in the Christian life. Now, the church fathers, the early church fathers, one to 350, believed both in eternal conscious torment and in conditional immortality. And in their writings, you can see it. Now, they used very biblical terms to talk about hell. So they would talk about an eternal fire, but they would also, or internal punishment, but they would also talk about death destruction because that's the way the Bible talks about it. They use the same terms. But when they took, when you take time to hunt down the earliest church fathers, the writings of the Didache, um, Polycarp, Irenaeus, these are early church fathers, you see them talking about the destruction of the soul as much as you see them talking about eternal conscious torment. But then when Augustine came on the scene, Augustine publicly took up eternal conscious torment and the church adopted it. This is in about 350. And from then on, it has been the traditional view. So I could refer to ECT as the traditional view and you would know that I'm talking about eternal conscious torment. I will also say that it is by far the greatest view that we find in the church today. And the people don't even want to study it. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to think about it. And I can tell you pastors don't want to do what I'm doing today. I can tell you that what I'm doing today by looking at the passages, what the Bible says, that it's a scary thing, lest I get marked as a heretic. Lest I find somebody paints heretic on the outside of the, the building after, after, you know, to, when we come in on Sunday. Now, um, whenever you, and Francis Chan did this in his book, Erasing Hell. Whenever someone starts to talk about eternal conscious torment, they will always start off by saying, I don't like it. I don't want it. I, I don't want it to happen to people. And, and then they'll bring it up. And I just find that interesting. God doesn't want it. The Bible says that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So your desire for there to be, not be eternal conscious torment and you believing it anyway is not an evidence for it. It's almost in every sermon that, or book that I read, the person will say something like that and then they still believe in it as if it's some kind of evidence. I don't, I don't want it, but I believe in it as if it's some kind of an evidence for it. It's just not. Now, um, the Bible does say that we've been given eternal life, clearly. So in Christ, for sure, we have been given eternity. And it may be that the soul is eternal. I began to look into this again five years ago in the very beginning because I knew if the soul isn't eternal, if the soul's eternal, then hell is eternal. And, and I, I began to ask around. I asked a friend of mine who's a pastor, um, what do you believe about, you know, is the, hell, is the soul eternal? He said, well, yeah, it's made, we're made in the image of God, so the soul's eternal. And I said, yeah, but God's all powerful. And we're not all powerful. Being made in the image of God doesn't mean we carry over every trait. There is a passage that says God has set eternity in our hearts. That's an interesting passage. Does that mean that God has given each one of us eternity? Maybe, maybe it has. So let's take a few minutes. I'm obviously not gonna make it all the way through the study, how much I would have wanted to. But let's take, just take a few minutes and look at a few passages about hell. I, I didn't put these, I did come in and put things together a little bit. I kind of collated them some. But I just started cutting and pasting passages that I would find on hell. And I just kind of want to cover these. I think it's maybe the best way for us just to get a feeling for it. Romans 2, 5 through 9. But in accordance 
with your hardness and the impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Now, we'll see this as we go through it. You can't say whatever view you have that, that the wrath of God will not fall on you. Jesus takes our wrath when we, we commit our lives to him. But other than that, you are under God's wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. Again, there's a judgment will render to each one according to his deeds. There's a judgment that will render according to what we do. Eternal life to those who by patience, continuance in doing good, seek the glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish. So not only do you have to believe in the wrath of God, no matter what your view is, and the, that there is a punishment, I mean, that there, that there is a judgment, but you have to believe that there's a punishment as well. There is anguish no matter what your view is. On every soul of man who does evil for the Jew first and then for the Greek. Now, we know it's going to be weighted. We'll get to that eventually. We know that, that some are going to be beaten with few and some are going to be beaten with many. So we do know that there is a weighting system to it. Psalms 1, and there are a lot of different passages about in, the, in Psalms about hell. And in the Old Testament, you do not find the concept of eternal conscious torment. You just don't find it in the Old Testament. Now, the, the, the Bible is a book that reveals things from beginning to end. If you just read Genesis, there's a lot of things you don't know. If you just read the Old Testament, there's a lot of things you don't know. If you read through the book of Revelation, there's still a lot of things you don't know. You read all the way through it and you have the full revelation of God all the way to the book of Revelation. So just because it's not in the Old Testament doesn't mean it, it can't be true. They just didn't have a concept of it in the Old Testament. But even though it wasn't in the Old Testament, they had a concept of it in the, in, in the, the century before Christ and Christ in the century after it. I'm talking about the Jewish people that lived in that time. They had a concept of it. So Psalms 1, 5 and 6 says, Therefore the ungodly shall not, uh, shall not stand in the judgment. It means they're not going to be able to stand there and take it. Doesn't mean they're not going to be there. They'll be there. No sinner in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And you will find this many times in the book of Psalms. I won't go through and quote a bunch of Psalms. I'm just telling you that many times you're going to find words like this, perish and destruction, that are in the book of Psalms. I'll give you another example. Psalms 37, 20 and 38. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. But the transgressions shall be destroyed. The transgressors shall be destroyed together with the future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the future of the wicked will be cut off. Okay. Matthew 10, 28 says, and do not fear those who can kill the body. I already said this one, um, but fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. Second, so I already read that one. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their deceptive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. But covetousness, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. And for a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. I thought after a full hard destruction passage, we should look at another one. This one says, Then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, I will worship the beast and his, um, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on their forehead or on their hand, he himself shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength in the cup of indignation. He shall torment with fire and brimstone. Torment, not torture, but torment, but with fire and brimstone, literal fire and brimstone or metaphor in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. So are these people going to be tormented forever in the presence of the angel and the lamb? Is the lamb going to have people off to the side somewhere who are tormented through all time? And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. So the smoke of their torment and the rest 
uh, and they have no rest day and night. So it seems like this continues on at least for a while. It's certainly not a quick thing. They are tormented. The smoke of their torment goes up and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, here we have a certain group of people that received the mark of the beast and they are going to be tormented because they had done that. And this seems to be, this could be distinct from others. So I'm, I'm wondering, I'm giving a little bit away of, of my ending on this. And I'm thinking out loud here because I am truly unsettled on this. I really am. I'm wondering if it's not an either or. This is a wonder. Okay, I'm not saying it is. I'm wondering if it's, an, if it's not an either or, but it's a both and. I'm wondering if most people are not destroyed. Some have eternal consequences. I'm just wondering. Thinking out loud. Not saying it. So don't say I'm saying it. Don't quote me as saying it, okay? I'm just thinking out loud that could this be a way of taking both of these statements and bringing them together and having them be true, really be speaking about specific things in each one of them? Maybe. Isaiah 34, 10, we smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. Isaiah 34, 10 is the destruction of Edom. Edom is Esau's descendants. They are in the area of modern-day Saudi Arabia. Edom was in the area of modern-day Mecca. It's possible that the city of Babylon in Revelation, we talked about this, could be Mecca. Some believe that it is. And that the Antichrist is Islam. I'm not saying that I believe it. I'm just telling you what a lot of people are believing today. And they believe that this is a reference to the city of Babylon. When it burns, it burns and the smoke of Babylon goes up forever and ever. Now, this is Edom that's destroyed in Isaiah 34, 10. It's talking about the future, even from us. It says, it shall be, it shall not be quenched day or night. This is the destruction of Edom. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie, uh, lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, this is a problem passage for those who say that the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever means that it's eternal. Because Edom is part of this earth that is going to flee away from the lamb who sits on the throne and is going to be gone forever. So heaven and earth is going to pass away, which means that the smoke of Edom will not go up forever and ever. So this is an idiom. What is an idiom? It's not an idiot. It's an idiom. An idiom is when you use words that mean something, but we are not listening to the words that it means at all. Like it's raining cats and dogs outside. If you took that literally, you'd be like, what? I need a new pet. But we know we mean something different. So the smoke of the torment goes up or the smoke of the destruction goes up forever and ever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It doesn't mean necessarily forever and ever. Now, this is just a problem passage. I wanted to put this in here because I wanted to show you what I mean by people that will say something like it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, but they won't go and address the problem passages. Just address it. However you address it. I've, I've heard people address it. You could address it instead of just throwing it out there and assuming because people are going to find out later. So if you if you are, if you've listened to someone teach eternal conscious torment, they throw out a few passages, but they don't tell you the problem passages and they straw man the other side. I see this done a lot. I, I see this done with the, with the um, conditional immortality side. They'll say they just, this is what they want. This is what they feel. There's no biblical uh, aspect to it at all. It's not built on anything biblical. And then I listen to their argument and I go, I'm not saying they're right, but there's a lot of biblical there. You can't, straw, if you straw man people and then easily tear it down in a sermon, then when you guys are faced with it, then you'll see clearly through the straw man. You'll, you'll see clearly that, and, and people do this all the time with opposing views. They make the opposing view as weak as possible so they can tear it apart. I prefer to steel man the opposite side. Make, them a, make their argument as strong as you can. Make it for them and make it better than they make it and then prove it's wrong after you've made the argument at least as strong as what their argument is. That is not done when it comes to hell. And I don't know that it's done from either side. 
And it's just something that drives me crazy. They just will not bring up problem passages. They just make the statement like this is what it says and that's what it is. And then you learn something later on. You go, well, wait a minute. I, I didn't think of that. Now, I'm at the end of this because I'm out of time. Um, let me just give you a couple thoughts in closing. I very much am like Francis Chan. I cannot put away the debate on the duration of hell. I just don't know. I don't want to believe one side or the other because I'm expected to. I don't want to believe one side or the other because believing one side would make me more popular with a certain group of people or pastors or believing the other side might cause them to go, eh, you know what? We don't want Robert around anymore because he believes in, you know, doesn't believe in eternal conscious torment. So I just want to be honest with the word of God. Whatever consequences fall, let them fall. But truly, I am undecided. Maybe Francis Chan said, I'm on the side of ECT, but I can't put away the debate. I'm just undecided. I, I look at it and go, and, and, and maybe, as I said, it might be a both and. Finally, it is proper when you're talking to people about hell because people will say, I'm not going to believe in a God who can send people to hell. It's proper to go, there's a couple different views on that. It's, it's okay to let people know that. You could say, I believe in eternal conscious torment, but there are people who believe and, and there's passages that they go to that they're destroyed instead of eternal conscious torment. I think that a lot of people won't follow Christ because of the whole hell issue. And if, if it's wrong, then they are saying something about God that isn't true. So I think it's okay to bring up the debate. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm, I'm going over both sides. Because I want you to know what's out there so that when you are sharing your faith, you can talk about this. Because I don't know where you'll end up. I, I believe we started here with 100% of you as ECT. I believe that. Just by default. It's Christianity. It's what we believe. It's what we taught. It's what we've always believed. And, and maybe now you're a little, eh, eh. I can tell you that's what happened to me five years ago. And I'm still not settled. But I, that doesn't bother me. I would rather get it right than try to pretend I'm right and later on go, oh, I was wrong. I don't mind saying I was wrong, but I'd rather get it right. I've got to go, so stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. So the worship team coming up. Father, thank you that we can spend time today talking about hell. And uh, Lord, our hearts do go out that no matter what, even if there is a resurrection, a judgment, a punishment, and then a destruction, that the people we love, we don't want to go there. We do not want them to face judgment and punishment, no matter what. And if it's eternal, even more so. So we pray that we would have a heart for those who know you, love you, want to know you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that passion for souls. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.